Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like eagles. Arms out wide. If we're gonna fear, we fear no evil. We will rise. By your power, we will go. By your spirit, we are bold. If we're gonna stand, we stand as giants. If we're gonna walk, we walk as lions. Good morning, good morning. It is Monday, the 4th of December. I'm Carmen LaBerge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. It is the season of Advent. It started yesterday, in case you, in case you missed that. Um, hey, we, um, we want you to prepare. We want you to prepare, not just for Christmas, but for the reality of the inbreaking of God in, in flesh into the context of human history. It changes everything. And so if you haven't already begun reading the Bible together with us, we've got Advent plans posted at MyFaithRadio.com. You can download our free Advent reading plan and subscribe to the Reading the Bible Together podcast. Uh, so encourage you to do that. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Advent, it is this season of anticipation and preparation um, for the season of Christmas. Christmas not just being a day, um, but a season, Christmas tide, 12 days that begin with a 24-hour period of time from Christmas Eve to Christmas Day. So um, maybe you hadn't been thinking you would celebrate Christmas as a season, Christmas tide, 12 days from Christmas Eve to Epiphany. But let me encourage you to begin anticipating that and preparing for that and expecting that. And then the season of Advent, a lot like the season of Lent that leads up to Holy Week and then ultimately the events of Good Friday and Easter, um, Advent is something that the the church, I think, developed as a rhythm over time, and then in the Protestant Reformation was largely set aside by most Protestants, um, and, and yet it's making quite a comeback. Christians have been looking for rhythms that we might enter into to reestablish ourselves and distinguish like holy time, time set apart ourselves set apart in the midst of the hectic nature of what Christmas has become in our very consumerist culture. And so let me invite you, if you haven't already embarked on a season of Advent, let me let me encourage you to do that. Obviously, uh, initially, Advent was this desire for the second coming, <laughs> like, right? There's no reason that Christians would have started anticipating the advent of Christ in a celebration of the fact that Christ had come. And so initially, the season of Advent was very much a season of anticipating and reading the passages of Scripture related to the second coming of Jesus. And so maybe maybe that's something you want to do during this season of Advent. Maybe you want to review the prophecies yet unfulfilled in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. God is still in the business of making good on the promises that he has made. God is a uh, the consummate promise keeper. And so maybe during this Advent, you want to consider that Christ is coming again. 
Yes, Christ has come, and we celebrate that at Christmas. Christ is coming again, um, and we celebrate that as well. And are we anticipating that in the same way that, uh, that people were anticipating the initial, the first coming of Christ? Are we watching for it like the wise men in, in the East were watching and waiting over the course of many, many, many uh, centuries? watching and waiting for the star of the King of Kings to arise for the one who would be the um, the illuminated one. I mean, like, anyway, all of the names that uh, the light of the world, it, you could do a a Names of Jesus advent. That's what, um, we did that with Asherita Choo Choo a couple of years ago. Um, you could... You could walk with Susie Larson through her Advent devotional, Prepare Him Room. That's what we did last year. So just a wonderful invitation and reminder during this season to maybe reroute ourselves um, in the reality of the promises of God, the Christ who has come, and yes, indeed, the Christ who is coming again. Today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. And you may be saying to yourself, hmm, Titus, I'm not sure I've spent too much time in Titus. Well, here you go. Here's an invitation for you. Where in the Word are you today? Maybe you could spend a little time in Titus. Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. This is a a beautiful poetic description of the redemptive work of God. When the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared. Jesus um, appears wrapped in human flesh and lying in a manger, but he appears in kindness and love, the very kindness and the love of God. To do what? To save us. Jesus was promised to be the one who would save his people from their sin. He came in kindness and love in order to save. Not because of righteous things we had done. (laughs) Oh no, quite to the contrary. But because of his mercy. Because he knew we needed saving. And he knew that salvation had to come from the outside. It was not a work we could um, muster up ourselves. It's a rescue based on mercy. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Uh, the world was waiting for salvation because the world was in travail and wars of all kinds. And that has not changed. A U.S. Navy warship had to intervene over the weekend after three commercial ships came under attack from drones and missiles in the Red Sea. Um, The assault was orchestrated and carried out by uh, a group of Iranian-backed individuals in Yemen. They're called the Houthi rebels. U.S. military officials um, noted that this represents a direct threat to international commerce and maritime security. U.S. Central Command, um, which is based in at MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida, is adding that the strikes were, quote, um, fully enabled by Iran uh, and in response to the ongoing Israel, Israel, Israeli war with Hamas. And so tensions are um, rising in the region, and the United States is, as I have said over and over and over again, increasingly engaged. This is direct U.S. military engagement. A U.S. Navy warship intervened 
That means it fired upon. That means it um, it took what we would regard as defensive measure, measures, but what others may see, see as offensive measures against um, individuals in Yemen. And so when we talk about the wider conflict and we talk about the region and we talk about U.S. involvement, this is a, it's been a significant weekend in terms of that. Um, you and I are always uh, at war. We're always under assault. The reality is that the enemy of our souls is always prowling around looking for a way to devour us. And so um, be on your guard. Be of good cheer. Um, Jesus has actually overcome the world, but that doesn't mean that we don't continue to live in it and in the hos- and subject to the hostilities of it. I have a story to share with you next um, that's actually... It's, I mean, I pulled it out of my like journal archive. <laughs> um, I was reviewing my some of my journals in anticipation of walking into the season of Advent and writing, you know, our annual Christmas letter that accompanies our Christmas card. And I came across this sort of like note to self. And it, I like to, um, this is going to offend some of you as authors, but I like to just tear pages out of books from time to time. And I took a book, took a page out of a book by um, a, a guy named Kent Nurburn. Back in 1999, he was a New York City taxi driver earlier in his life. And I want to share part of his story with you next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. In 1999, Kent Nurburn published a book entitled Make Me an Instrument of Your Peace. Um, In it, he describes, well, he describes lots of things that happened throughout the course of his life. But in his early years, he talks about his time as a New York City taxi driver. And at that time of his life, he says, you know, I wanted to be my own boss. Um, And then as he grew in wisdom and age, he started reflecting on just how much of a ministry being a cab, a cab driver had really been. And he wasn't as aware of this sort of in the moment as he became aware of it over the course of time. He says, driving the night shift, passengers would get into the cab and sit behind me. You know, they're totally anonymous. And then they just start telling me about their lives. It was um, it was like a moving confessional. He talks about praying silently for his passengers as they confessed or sometimes just groaned with sighs too deep for words. But he wasn't an interventionist. He He didn't intervene. He didn't get involved. And then there was that one hot August night. Kent says he was responding to a call um, that took him to a small brick fourplex in a quiet part of town. He wasn't sure who he was picking up, perhaps some late night partier, somebody who maybe had been in a fight with the person they lived with. Sometimes at this hour of the day, a worker heading to a factory for an early morning shift. And in any case, it was a person who didn't have transportation. He arrived at 2.30 in the morning. He could see there was a small light uh, on in one of the ground floor windows. So he honked, as was customary. And then he honked again. Now, most drivers wouldn't wait very long. But something, Kent says, just led me to wait. He had no sense of danger. And then, again, in an unusual act, he got out of the cab and he walked to the door. And he knocked. And he heard what he describes as a frail frail elderly voice answering, Just a minute. He said, I could hear another sound from behind the door. It sounded like something being dragged across the floor. Finally, the door opened, and standing there was a small woman. She looked to be in her 80s, maybe 90. 
She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned to it. Like somebody out of a 1940s movie, Kent thought. Beside her, she had this small nylon suitcase, which explained the dragging sound he'd heard through the door. He then noticed that her apartment looked like it hadn't been lived in for years. Sheets covered all the furniture. Nothing hung on the walls. The counters were bare. There was one cardboard box and some glassware sitting in a corner. She looked up at the cabbie and asked him if he would carry her bag to the car, and he obviously did, and then he went back to help her, escorting her slowly toward the curb, she holding his arm, thanking him over and over again for his assistance. And let me just read this next part in Ken's um, own words. When we got to the cab, she gave me an address, and then she asked, could you drive through downtown? I said, well, that's not the shortest way. And she said, oh, I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror and her eyes were glistening and she was looking out the window, but she could see me seeing her. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctor says I don't have very long. I quietly reached over to just shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take? She smiled ever so slightly and directed me toward downtown. And for the next two hours, we just drove around the city. She showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that she said had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me just to slow down in front of a particular building or sit on a corner, and we would just stare into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of sunlight was creasing the horizon, she said, I'm tired. Let's go now. I pulled up the address that she'd given me, and we drove in silence. It was a low building, like a small home. It had a driveway that passed under a portico. And as soon as we pulled up, two orderlies came out to the cab. They were very careful with her, watching her every move. They had been expecting her. (laughs) Now for hours. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you? She asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. There are other passengers. And almost without thinking, I just bent down and I gave her a hug. And she held on so tightly. She whispered in my ear, you have given an old woman a little moment of joy. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then I walked into the dim morning light, wiping away tears, suddenly needing to blow my nose. And behind me, I heard the door shut. But I heard it not so much as the closing of a door, as the sound of the closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, just lost in thought, and for the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if she'd gotten an angry driver? What if she'd gotten an impatient driver who didn't even wait around? What if I'd refused to take the run at all or honked once and then driven away? What if I'd never gone to the door? As I review my life, I don't think I've ever done anything more important than I did that night. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around great moments. But great moments often catch us unaware beautifully wrapped in what the rest of the world would consider 
a very small act. So that's a profound truth today, my friend. The great moments that often catch us unaware are really the beautifully wrapped smallest of gifts. It was a very small gift that arrived in a manger wrapped in human flesh. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. You've heard it said that it only takes a spark to get a fire going. You've also heard it sung, let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Well, what about hope? What about hope? What does it take to get hope sparked? And what does it take to get hope moving around the world? I got a hope hat. I got a hope shirt. I got a hope bumper sticker. I know a ministry of hope. I know people who need hope. But how do we actually give hope beyond bumper stickers and theme songs and ball caps? How do we help other people discover the hope that is real, substantial, and enduring? My guess is one reason you listen to this podcast is, well, it delivers hope. So as you're thinking about giving gifts this Christmas, have you considered giving others the gift of hope? You can give hope this season by supporting Faith Radio's Give Hope for Christmas campaign by sharing your story of hope at MyFaithRadio.com because hope begets hope. Pass it on. I know. Yeah. Take a deep breath. I'm crying too. (laughs) Uh, We love great stories, don't we? Um, I love the greatest story ever told. Do you love to tell the story? Like this is that season. This is that season when it's okay um, to tell the story. It's it's really it's okay to make the connection between the carol that you're hearing um, and the reality of the Christ who has come. You're going to be standing in line. I, I can I can almost guarantee this. <clears throat> Sometime over the course of the next days and weeks, you're going to be standing in line, and you're going to be standing in line with strangers, and everybody is going to be quiet. Like on an elevator. Um, standing in line is a little bit like, you know, standing on an elevator. Everybody's just supposed to be standing in one direction, looking, looking forward and not, but not looking at each other, not taking too much, (laughs) paying too much attention to one another. Like, right. Just waiting for the door to open, just waiting for the person in front of us to get out of the way so we can load our stuff onto the conveyor belt and right. Make our purchases. And there's like etiquette. There's like elevator etiquette. Right. And you're not really supposed to say anything. I don't know about you, but I just, well, this is not going to surprise you. I don't, I don't like elevator etiquette. I just don't. I like to make eye contact. I like to smile. I, well, I like to talk to people, especially if it's a long ride, you know, all the getting on and off. Like I want to know who I'm with. I mean, if it, if it actually shut down, if the elevator shut down, then we'd get to know each other. Right. So why not, you know, at least look each other in the eye and make that social contact. It's an opportunity to, you know, comment on the Christmas sweater or, um, you know, where they might be headed or, you know, I mean, all kinds of things. All right. So back to standing in line, waiting to make our purchases during Christmas season. We're all listening to Christmas music like it is everywhere. It's ubiquitous right now. OK, so you're going to be standing there in line with people listening to Christmas music together. And so are you prepared to take that Christmas carol and turn it into a conversation? Could you turn the Christmas carol you're both listening into a conversation? Let's think about that for a minute. Um, how about 
How about, well, I don't know, what might we be hearing? Um, Probably some peppy secular Christmas music, right? Uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. Let's just take that one as an example. So you're hearing... You're hearing the strains of Santa Claus is coming to count. Santa Claus is coming to town. <clears throat> and let me just ask you just for a minute. Is Santa Claus the one who's coming to town? I mean, really? Is Santa really the one coming to town? Now, this is not this isn't a spoiler alert, but Jesus is actually the one coming to town. And by the way, God is the one who actually sees us when we're sleeping and knows when we're awake. And he's the one who knows who's been bad or good. But we don't be good for goodness sake. We be good in response to the reality that God is good. And we want to be reflections of his goodness in the world. I mean, we're good because God is good and gracious. Because God has poured his grace out upon us in ways that we cannot even account for. Um, what else is in, that, uh, is in that song that you think to yourself, I could turn that into a conversation? Um. Santa Claus is coming to town. Lyrics. Let's just pull these up super quick. Um, yeah, he's coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Um, so he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. That's pretty much it. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. So, now, here's the thing. Uh, the, the shouting and pouting and crying, that might actually be taking place. Um, in in the line where you are, there might actually be like grouchy children or grouchy husbands standing in the checkout line. Or if you're at Home Depot or Lowe's or some other big box store where, you know, you've been sent to pick up some item that you thought to yourself should have been gotten the last time the other person went to Home Depot, which was like just yesterday. And so you might be a little grouchy. So let's check our attitude this Christmas season, this Advent season, and let's have instead like holy expectation. Let's be grateful for the opportunity to stand in a line. Let's be grateful for the time. Let's be grateful for the resources. Let's be grateful that the lights are on. Let's be grateful that we're not living in a place in active war. Let's be grateful for a a, a peace that passes understanding and, yes, for a passable peace in the country in which we live. Let's use it as an opportunity to give thanks to God and not grouse about um, having to stand in line or having to wait our turn um, or the cost of something or resources being short. I think it's okay this year to give, to give less. Let me say that again. <clears throat> I think it's okay this year to give less. We make a commitment uh, every single year to like, all right, we're not going to overdo the gift thing. And then we overdo the gift thing. So Jim and I have an agreement this year. We we really want, uh, we can't redo our whole kitchen. Like we just can't. It's time. Like, you know, you reach that point in time. It's it's a, it's a kitchen that's going on well over 25 years and it's been you know it's it's been through six kids it's it's done a lot of raising of people it's time like the hinges are it's time i don't know how else to say that but we we we're not doing that right now but i do think we could replace the island the island is this like wacky weird shape i like to cook a lot it's totally insufficient for that and it has that like that section that's up high and sticks out for people to sit to sit at and um, frankly, it just collects stuff. It's just like the counter that collects stuff. And so I really would just like a flat square island. 
And so that's what we're talking about giving each other for Christmas. Yep, just going in together and giving each other that as a gift for Christmas. Just taking out the existing island and replacing it with just this, you know, square functional one. So there you go. Something um, that will be a blessing to not only the two of us, but to our family in an ongoing way. What are you thinking about in terms of gift giving this Christmas? Are you doing alternative gifts? Are you giving through maybe the Heifer Project or maybe you're giving through um, some other alternative gift program? What are you doing? Are you doing an angel tree thing this Christmas? Like, what are you doing this Christmas? I'd love to know. 877-933-2484. You can text me. What's your favorite gift strategy um, at Christmas? I'd, I'd like to be in on that. Again, you can text me. 877-933-2484. I just thought we'd start this morning with like a deep breath. I mean, yes. Are there wars and rumors of wars? Yes. Um, are some people going to... To college bowl games, yes. Does the does Florida State University f- feel slighted? Yes. Um, do the Michigan Wolverines uh, are they super excited? Yes. Is the president of the University of Northwestern St. Paul so excited that he's sending cheeky emails to Florida losers? Yes, he is, Doctor Hornbeak. I see you out there. Um, all of that is going on for sure. Um, and yes, we should read the obituary page later. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor has died. Um, there's, um, there's all kinds of opportunity for us to reflect together on what is happening in the world. But there is an other out-of-this-world thing taking place, and that is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. And so let's take note of that today, and let's be sure we get our time, our one-on-one time, um, with the Lord our God. So again, we're in the Word are you today? Our friend Daniel Bennett's going to join us next. We're going to talk about mending divisions, and we're going to actually talking about like going to school for that. Is there an academy? Is there a way to learn as adults about how to actively be reconciled in relationship one with the other? Is there a mending division academy? Ha! Yes, in fact, there is. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Hey, our friend Daniel Bennett is back from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Carmen. Hey, what is the Mending Division Academy and why do we need such a thing? I mean, are we are we divided? What? I would say we're a little divided. Um, no, obviously, I mean, I know you're being uh, kind of facetious. Uh, yeah, we have divisions across our society, across our culture, certainly our politics. And it's getting to a pretty bad place in terms of the implications for not only our interpersonal interactions, but then the extension of those interactions for our collective relationships in government, in politics, in our communities. And so Mending Division Academy uh, was, was founded this year. And uh, just recently became available for folks to peruse. I'm sure you'll put the links to that in the show notes. Absolutely. And they, these are practical, uh, easily digestible courses, modules, video-based curricula that will encourage folks to not only understand the divisions that are plaguing us better if they haven't really been able to put those divisions into words, 
But more importantly, I think, give some practical tools and strategies for, uh, I guess, uh, trying to repair these divisions after recognizing that they do, in fact, exist. So, um, again, we're talking about uh, something that you can attend online, um, the Mending Division Academy. It's not as if um, we're we're necessarily going to all go right um no and we're and this is going to go online yeah no you you do go online it is an asynchronous system which is online teaching speak for you can do it at your leisure you can do it whenever you want (laughs) these are pre-recorded uh videos uh from folks who are uh, not only experts in these things but also i think uh, pretty passionate about mending these these divisions that are that are in our communities. So, like I said, each 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 video is about twenty to thirty minutes long. There's some discussion questions, uh, which I think makes it great not only uh, for individuals if you want to go through this yourself, but I think part of the audience here is church small groups or neighborhood mm. small groups, neighborhood uh, friend groups, to try to you know encounter some ways in which we might see the world differently. And uh, try to find some common ground in the midst of these differences. That's so good. That's so good. Um, talk with us about Sandra Day O'Connor. There may be people listening who are not um, aware that the first female to serve yeah. as a Supreme Court justice um, has has died. Right. And one of the reasons why people might not be familiar is because she's been out of the public eye for so very long. So she was nominated to the Supreme Court in the early 1980s. Ronald Reagan, as he was running for president, pledged to put the first woman on the United States Supreme Court. And he did that when he nominated and the Senate confirmed Sandra Day O'Connor. She was unusual in at least more contemporary uh, comparisons to Supreme Court justices in that she had a previous political background. She was a really brilliant lawyer and jurist, but she also... Uh, understood and was effective in our political system in Arizona. And on the Supreme Court, she crafted this uh, reputation for being generally pretty conservative in her ideology, but very pragmatic, very practical as well. A lot of her decisions were fact-based rather than result-based, which means she tended to look to the facts of each case regardless of the larger issue in play and make her decisions based on the facts and how they conform to existing legal precedent. So uh, she left behind a pretty incredible legacy, not only, of course, uh, in the law, but also in terms of representation and advancing career. She was a model for uh, women lawyers uh, in the United States for the last 50 years. And uh, she left the Supreme Court in 2005 uh, lived 18 years after that, and uh, by all intents and purposes, uh, really quite an amazing life. Yeah, I think one of the things um, to note about Sandra Day O'Connor is, you know, just from a Christian worldview and a Christian perspective, she she didn't just attend church. She was actually no. an active part of a church. Um right. I'm just going to read a little portion here. She she frequently attended Sunday worship services at the Washington National Cathedral. Um, she served in lay leadership within the congregation for some eight years. And there did come a time when she left Washington and went back to Arizona to support her husband who was suffering with dementia. And, she, I mean, that's a that is a sacrifice that we 
we can absolutely understand making for one another as husband and wife. Although I do think that there is a spirit of feminism that wouldn't do that. Like she's a first wave feminist in the most positive of ways. Um, yes. And I'm not sure she would necessarily recognize the the fourth wave we're in now. Um, I just I just wanted to highlight her her faith and and how she lived it um particularly in demonstration to the care and concern for her husband towards the end of his life yeah no that's exactly right and you know i mentioned she left the supreme court in 2005 primarily because uh her husband was uh progressing uh down the road to dementia and again she had probably another at least 10 years of good service on the supreme court so to 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 surrender that, right? To say, I could live mm-hmm. on, I could be on the Supreme Court for 10 more years and further ingrain this legacy. Um, or I could step into the background and love and support and care for this man who I've committed, you know, in a covenantal relationship to, to being married to. That's, I, I would hope that we would make that choice, but I think our mm-hmm. culture, like you said, is making it more acceptable to choose the former, um, so you're right. I, I think there's something admirable about that. Admirable about that. This wasn't lip service to uh, Christianity in this in the name of political advancement. This was a real, uh, as far as we know, a real uh, commitment, and uh, it bore out in her in her actions. Um, we're all super aware, Daniel, of what is going on in the Middle East. You had an opportunity recently to offer your perspective on the ongoing conflict between Israel and Hamas, um, and you had the opportunity to do so you know, live on television. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about that experience, um, what, you, what you said, give us your perspective um, on it, and maybe if there's been any feedback, what you've been hearing. Yeah, it was a it was a little uh, a little intimidating to be honest. Whenever I get asked to to go on local news uh, to contextualize the the events of the day, it's almost always in the context of elections or American politics. So when I was asked to speak on the conflict between Israel and Hamas, it was pretty it was out of my comfort zone <laughs> a bit. But I think one of the reasons why I was eventually more comfortable is because this is an issue that isn't that hasn't just bubbled up over the last, you know, six or eight or 12 weeks, right? This is an issue that mm-hmm. has been, at least in contemporary international relations, going on since the 1940s and 50s. But of course, we as Christians know this uh, <laughs> predates our, our modern states and, and systems of government. Um, this goes at the root of, of the Old Testament, right? With, with, uh, with Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar. Uh, so there's some... I think some context is helpful there. One of the things I mentioned is that the difficulties with this, and I think we started to see it play out uh, as Israel has respected and then later um, continued fighting following a ceasefire. Uh, The global community, I think, is really quick to forget the atrocities that took place Mm -hmm. um, and insist, and I think rightfully so, insist on safe passage and uh, for refugees and express concern for uh, folks in, in, in Palestine and Gaza who were killed uh, as, as uh, you know, as accessories to all of this. Um, but Israel, it feels like they're in a separate or they're in an entirely new space right now where they say, we're, we're not going to deal with this anymore. And I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm hopeful that the global community uh, recognizes that 
And at least in the United States, we haven't seen a majority of folks taking that perspective yet. The vast majority of folks in, the, in Congress and the Senate are still overwhelmingly supportive of Israel's right to defend itself and respond in kind. I hope that keeps up. I'm not sure it will in the long term, but I hope it does. Yeah, I would say the the statistic that um, that I read over the weekend where something like 51 percent. So there you go, like an actual majority, 51 um, percent of younger adults um, think Hamas was justified in its actions yeah. on October. Oh. And that's just ludicrous. There's no there is no justification for what took place on October the 7th. And I would say that, you know, as a, not just as a woman, but, but as a woman, um, the, the things done to women on that day, um, we can't, I can't even talk about them here because it's Christian radio. Like I can't even say out loud the things that were done, um, to women and now they're dead. And so they cannot tell those stories themselves. Um, and I, it, it there there is no justification for what took place on October the seventh, and we have to keep saying that over and over and over again, um, even as we have conversations about what is now happening and what war yes. is like and where the Palestinians will ultimately live and who's going to rebuild Gaza and on and on and on. All, all those are conversations that must be had, but we can only have them in the context of a real conversation um, and a living memory of what happened on October the seventh. Hundred percent, yeah, and I, I am thankful that, at least among our elected officials, that fifty-one percent figure <laughs> seems relatively foreign. If you look at the halls of power, because um, you do see the occasional outlier in Congress, uh, yeah. you know, that comes out and, sure. and but the, but but this is a cross-party issue so far. Let's keep it that way. Um, I haven't seen it written up um, anywhere, and so um, this might be a bit of an assignment. Um, this language of "from the river to the sea." I do think at some point somebody needs to just put in an article, Numbers 34, verses 6 and 14, and Isaiah 9, verse 1, um, particularly as we enter into Advent and we all focus mm. on Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 2. Like I think we should remember what verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 9 says. Um, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the, and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. It is mm. literally from the Jordan River to the sea. Um, we're mm. going to continue our conversation with Daniel Bennett here in just a moment. I know sometimes it's just the little things that we drop into the conversations that you love the best. So there you go. Um, when we uh, When we think about what is happening in the world Um, What are you busy? What are you up to? Dan is writing a book. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk about that next. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. If you're a new listener, we want to officially welcome you with a free welcome pack gift. Request yours today at MyFaithRadio.com. All right. Daniel Bennett has actually written a book. (laughs) But it hasn't been published yet. So this is actually a good time to ask you about it, because by the time it's published, you will have written a hundred other things. And (laughs) it will be hard for you to remember what was in the book. So tell us about uneasy citizenship, embracing the tension in faith and politics. Mm -hmm. Give us a little sneak peek. Yeah, so the the goal of the book is to offer a way forward. And I know that's kind of an overused phrase in some of these spaces, but it really is meant to be a practical uh, guide 
and argument for a more positive vision, vision of Christian politics in the United States. This is not a politics that is uh, one of surrender or relativism, where we, you know, embrace a, well, you know, your truth is yours and ours is ours is ours, and let's just kind of agree to disagree on these things. And it's also not a we are going to um, subdue the political world for the sake of God's kingdom. There's a way that we can engage our culture and our politics to advance God's kingdom while at the same time acting distinctly, distinctly Christian in the ways we do these things. And this isn't a secret. This isn't a five-step guide to better Christian politics, but it is my read as a Christian, as a political scientist, uh, on the challenges that are affecting our political system right now. But more importantly than that, the opportunities that we have as Christians to live amidst these challenges uh, faithfully, but also, I think, uh, lovingly uh, to our neighbors. Okay. Have you read Politics for People Who Hate Politics? You've talked about this before. I know. I, I, so yeah. she, came, she came on the show, and we talked to her, Denise, um, Denise Gitcham. And I, the whole time I'm listening to her, I'm thinking to, my, I'm thinking to myself, she should know Daniel Bennett. Like, they should be pals. <laughs> Hey, just bring her on next time. Let's let's have a a meet. Oh, no, that's actually that's you know. that's great. Let's do that. Let's totally Paul's going to file that away. Yeah, Paul, file that away, and let's let's. It is let's so get, filed. It is so filed. It's so good. Well, one of the things that I just appreciated about her was her humility in talking about um, how she used to engage in yep. the politics of the day and did so from a totally worldly, you know, the worldly way, the way the ways of the world, and then as a Christian you know, had this moment and then season of, hmm, aha, hmm, like, right? Where you're just like, yeah, this is just not the way um, I'm using the weapons of the world. And that's not the way of Christ. And so, you know, increasingly learning to engage um, in the politics of the day, in the real world conversations that we're all having, but doing so, speaking the truth in love. And actually being saying that like in public, yeah. on air, in all kinds of yep. settings. And I'm just like, that is so I mean, I love her. I like I like, you know, I'm a fangirl if that's an appropriate thing to be at this stage of my life. Um Absolutely. And so I just think that when we do see people in public doing what we know is right and doing it in a way that's righteous, um, we ought to celebrate it and we ought to fan the flame. And so I just um yeah, I think you and I are yeah. always looking looking for people like that um, with whom we can partner and people we can celebrate and point to and say, okay, that is actually what we're talking about. Yeah. And this isn't a this isn't a politics of niceness. This isn't a politics of smiles and let's all agree to disagree and get along and everything. One of the conversations I have with my students this semester is the difference between Christian kindness and Christian niceness, right? Kindness mm. is far more difficult, far more, <laughs> some, I mean, it's challenging, right? To be kind, genuinely kind, rather than to put on the facade of simply being nice to each other. And sometimes, sometimes kindness requires difficult conversations. And so a Christian model of politics, I think is a lot harder than what the world has to offer, which is a zero sum, just dig in your heels. You leave the conversation not satisfied with the other side, but more convinced of you know than ever of your own the rightness of your own position, and the cycle repeats itself. A Christian vision of politics is one that requires an investment 
in doing the right thing at the right times, regardless of the outcomes that it leads to. And that's hard. Um, mm. it's, 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 it's humbling. And these things do not, <laughs> they, they are not currently in vogue right now in our culture. So I think, I think that word is right that you just said about, um, you know, being, becoming a Christian or understanding your faith and then taking a step back and saying, Ooh, I don't know if I'm doing this correctly. Yeah. And, and then being willing to publicly say, okay, yes. in the past, I, I didn't do this correctly. Um, I guess, yep. you know, when I say that out loud, I, I not only recognize that in my own life and my, you know, my own growth in grace and seeing the things and the ways and the ways in which I saw people in the past that, um, you know, that now I see them very, very differently. Um, but then we had a, a conversation with uh, Rosaria Butterfield and in her mm. new book, she goes into, hey, these are the things and the ways that I I spoke incorrectly in the past and I want to clarify and I want to rectify. And, you know, wow. I, I think that's good growth. And sometimes, especially when we've written it down and put it in a book, and then later on we have to say, okay, what I said there or the way that I said that there that's that's not Jesus-y. I'm I'm taking yeah. you know I'm not taking that back. I'm moving forward. I'm repenting of that, and I want you to hear me say it now in a different way, um, mm. or with a different with a different tone of voice. So, yeah, I yeah. just think that um, that's good. Humility is really good for all of us, um, and we need to have the grace to allow people to grow. Like right, if if discipleship is a journey, and we're all growing, then we got to have the grace to let other people grow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's a process. It's challenging. It's uncomfortable. And that's kind of the point. That's the title of the book. It's uneasy citizenship. We have to hold our earthly citizenship somewhat at arm's length, recognizing it's incredibly important and it affects the common good and the well-being of our neighbors. But man, it is secondary to where our true citizenship lies. Uh, the Golden Eagles are um, not going. Uh, <laughs> they are not. They are not in the football championship. Is that correct? That John Brown University did not did not get a bid for the college football playoff. No, I'm still bitter about it, but it's fine. Uh, all right, um, we are going to leave it there as we make our um, our pivot to a conversation about football. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> all right. So, hey, thank you, um, thank you so much. We're looking forward with you to the book, and we look forward to an thank ongoing you. conversation about these important issues. That's Daniel Bennett. You can find him at John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog, eventually the Uneasy Citizenship book, Embracing the Tension in Faith and Politics. Football, anyone? Football, anyone? It, it's been a whirlwind championship weekend, um, and the college football playoffs are set. You may say to yourself, I know nothing about this. Um, well, a lot of people actually do care and are concerned um, about these things. So here you go. Something you need to know as you enter into this week, the final year of a four-team format in college football playoffs, because I think it's expected to expand to 12 teams next year, um, which will make the college bowl or playoff season longer. Um, and, you know, that's better for the bucks, right? The <clears throat> the the money in the pockets of the people. So, um uh, let's see. Florida State went 13-0 and and won the ACC championship with their third-string quarterback. And yet, however, uh, Alabama is going to face off with Texas uh, ahead of the Seminoles. So there you go. Florida State is going to face Georgia, which was upset by Alabama in the SEC championship in the Orange Bowl. Number one, Michigan is going to face number four, 
Alabama in the Rose Bowl. There you go. That's what I got for you. We got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. Yeah, I don't know. We're going to move on from football. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.